Well, let's open our Bibles now, if you would please, to the book of Revelation chapter 19. And we continue our study in Revelation 19. And we're looking at this glorious scene in heaven that occurs when God brings his vengeance upon the wicked empire of the Antichrist. This is the judgment upon Babylon which, as you know, is the last human government, the last wicked human government that rules the world. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, all of human history has been moving towards the time when God is going to rule this world in perfect peace and righteousness. Now, the world belongs to God, and for his righteous purposes, he has decided to allow Satan to usurp his authority in the world for a time, Uh, Satan, as we know, according to the Word of God, is called the God of this world. He has the freedom to tempt men to sin. He has the freedom to do all types of evil works. He's very powerful, and he could do much worse today if God didn't put some restraints upon him. When you come to the time of the tribulation period, God is actually going to remove the restraints upon Satan, and then... uh, evil will play out like it never has before. There will be gross immorality all over the world. The world system will flourish in its decadence. And also at that time, those who have trusted in Christ, who have believed in Jesus during the time of the tribulation period, they are true believers, and yet they are going to be horribly persecuted, and millions will be killed during that time. Now at the present, it's somewhat of a mystery why God works in the way that he does. The scripture says that God's ways are above our ways. It says his ways are past finding out. But there's one thing that we do know. The word of God has revealed to us that God does intend to magnify his name upon the earth. God intends that he will be glorified and all creatures will acknowledge the greatness of his power. And if God chooses to allow the rise of evil... All the terrible things that we see happen in the world, if he chooses to allow that evil to come into the world just for the purpose of overruling it, then we have to say that God is just in doing so. God is the one who is the standard of righteousness, and none of us dare question what God does. Now, the Apostle Paul states it this way in Romans chapter 9. He says in the 20th verse, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy, which he had before afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? Now, that might seem to be some very cryptic language at first, but the, ver- the gist of the verses is that God has the right to do with every person as he sees fit. He is the creator. And if God sees fit to choose some out of fallen humanity and to take those people and make them vessels for his honor and his glory, God has the right to do so. And also, if God decides to leave some in their sin, to pass them over, to not save them, if God chooses to leave them in that way and to their just condemnation, then God is also right in doing that. Now, we notice also here that Paul says that God has the right to be long-suffering towards those that are fitted for destruction. 
Now that means that God may allow people to go a long time in their sins, not to bring destruction upon them immediately. And if he chooses to do that in order to magnify his power and to show his, his, uh, his, the greatness of his might in, in even greater ways and to do that for his own purposes, then Paul says there's no one who can find fault in God for doing that. And so that is what God has done with the world. In the very beginning... He could have allowed Adam to sin, and then he could have overruled it right then, and he could have recreated the world in innocence if he had wanted to. And God could have kept Adam from sinning in the first place. But God did not decide to do that. In his wisdom and his freedom as the creator, he allowed Adam to sin, and then he reserved judgment upon man's sin until a later time. And so if he has allowed all the wickedness of men to pile up, all of their sins to pile up, in order to bring about a a cataclysmic end to it all, and in a great display of his power and his might, he destroys it all, God has the right to do that. Now, in the meantime, God's people know that that day is coming. We don't know how long it will be. Sometimes we wish that it could be sooner, and we long for it, we pray for it. Now, the Word of God says that we are to claim that, or pray that Christ's kingdom would come. And when it happens, when it does come, and we know that it will come, there will be a time in heaven with singing and shouting and praising God like has never been seen before. This is what we see in chapter 19. In the 18th chapter, Babylon's sins have reached the top. They piled all the way up to heaven. And when God reaches that point where he's led Philip to the max, which is a point that we're not privy to, when it's reached that predetermined level that God decides, then God swings that final blow at Babylon and Babylon's tower comes crashing down. And so what we see then in the 19th chapter is heaven rejoicing because the final bricks and the pavement that leads to the to the everlasting kingdom of God are now being put into place. And so very soon, by the time we finish up with the 19th chapter and we go into the 20th chapter, God's kingdom is established upon the earth. Now we're looking then in the meantime at the first part of this chapter and what we've called the Hallelujah Chorus. And that's because in the first six verses of this chapter we find Alleluia, and that is a Greek form of the Hebrew word hallelujah, we find that four different times in these first six verses, and it simply means, simply means, hallelujah means praise the Lord. Now, if you look at the 19th chapter, beginning in verse number 1, after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants and Ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now John says, after 
these things. That is after the blasting of Babylon that we see in the 18th chapter. This is after that city of wickedness, the the wickedness of Satan is destroyed. There's a chorus that comes from heaven, from every sector of heaven, and it shouts out, Hallelujah. I've divided this particular section on the Hallelujahs into three different parts. And we're going to talk about, again, these Hallelujahs that come from heaven. Now, the first of these are the ones that we looked at last week, and these are the severe hallelujahs. These are the hallelujahs of verses 1 through 3, and they actually praise God for the severity of the destruction that God brings upon Babylon. So here are hallelujahs of judgment. This is the acknowledgement that God's right, God has the right to inflict severest judgment possible upon his enemies. In the 18th chapter, verse number 7, there's an angel that says, Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she had filled, filled to her double. And so these are martyrs in heaven that sing these hallelujahs. They have been severely persecuted. Their blood was shed because they had faith in God. And they rejoice now because God has avenged them upon their enemies. And they acknowledge that whatever God decides to do with these enemies is just. And these are the same kinds of hallelujahs that we find from the Old Testament. In the book of Psalms, there, there are particular ones that are called the Hallels. And these are praises that, uh, that the people give because of judgment and the destruction of God's enemies. Now, in that first verse, we see salvation and glory and honor and power under the Lord our God. Now, that is speaking of final salvation. It's not talking about the soul's salvation We discussed last week uh, that when a person trusts Christ, he's saved immediately. So we're not talking about soul salvation. We're talking here about the salvation of the world from the curse of sin. This is deliverance from sin, that, that thing that has plagued us, and it's been a foul stench in the nostrils of God all the way back since the Garden of Eden. And so for thousands of years, the sin that we've been into, the sin uh, that, that is in this world oppresses us. Sin is the root cause of all of our problems, of all the troubles in the world. Sin brings sickness, it brings sorrow, it brings death. Sin is a curse to our bodies. And this salvation spoken of here is deliverance from that oppression of sin. Then the verse also says glory to God. So there's glory to God because God has the moral authority to uphold his law. He has the right to enforce his judgment. And so the second verse says true and righteous are thy judgments. So heaven rejoices because God has destroyed this last evil kingdom. Uh, This is the kingdom that stands in the way of the glorious kingdom of Christ coming upon the earth. Now you see what Babylon is and is the conglomeration of the world's governments. All of the earth's corruption is rolled up into this one government at the end of the world, and here is Satan's last stand. This is his final attempt at overcoming God. And so God allows all the nations of the world to come together in a unified front, and God has a purpose in doing that. And that's so that in one swoop, one snap of his fingers, he can destroy it all at one time. Now the scripture then... also says power. God has the power to do that. And we ought not to get the wrong idea about God's power. This is not comparative power, and this is not quantitative power. We're not talking here about a comparison between God and Satan, as if God has a lot of power, Satan has a lot of power, only God has just a little bit more. 
And so with a lot of struggling, he's finally able to wrestle Satan to the ground. No, no, no. Not that kind of power. Satan only has the power to do what God allows him to do. Now, as I began the message, I I described what God does in order to magnify his name. And so he has given a measure of power to evil angels. And those evil angels, for whatever reason God decides to do this, maybe it's to impress men with the power that they do have. Maybe that emboldens men against God because they see the power of evil angels. But we know that God flips that power on and off just as easily as you flip on a light switch on the wall. When Babylon's destruction comes, it's simply God saying to all evil, saying to Satan and all of his minions, lights out. In the very beginning of the creation, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and that was lights on. And when it comes here to the destruction of Babylon, folks, it is lights out. The 23rd verse of chapter 18 says, and the light of the candle shall shine no more at all in thee. So that covered the first two hallelujahs. They're severe hallelujahs that come from the martyred saints that have finally seen God's promised vengeance come upon their enemies. Now, we notice then in verse number 4, it says, And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, alleluia. Now, this is what I call the sovereign hallelujah. And it comes from these 24 elders that are seated around the throne and from four living creatures that are in the throne room. Well, it's been quite a bit of time since we've discussed who these 24 elders are and what these four, who these, what these four beasts represent. But we first saw them all the way back in chapter 4. Now I want you to turn back there and we're going to read some scripture here. And we're going to look at this for just a minute. This marvelous scene in heaven of the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And so in Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 4, it says, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. Now, let me just stop there. The word seats there is the same word as throne. So around the throne were four and twenty seats, or there were twenty-four other thrones. And upon those seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their head crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had the face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created." I don't have time to go into all of that now. Um, If you want to know more about it and uh, understand it a little bit better, then you need to go back to those uh, sermons that we preached on the fourth chapter. But let let me just give you a brief idea of what's taking place here. The 24 elders 
are representative of all the redeemed in all ages. So in God's throne room, there are 24 thrones that are circling around the main throne of God. And there are 24 that have been chosen from all the redeemed of all ages that are representatives of the people of God in the throne room. Now, if you think about that for a moment, if you were to take all of the people that were saved before Christ came into the world and then take all the people that are saved after he came into the world and count all the people saved all the way up until the time of the tribulation period, if you had all of them in the throne room, what would you have? Well, you'd have a scene of pandemonium. And so instead of having all of those thousands and even millions of people that are in the throne room, there's a manageable number here. And so what we have is 24 that are representative of all of God's people. Now, in the Old Testament, there were too many priests to serve in the temple all at one time. The tribe of Levi had too many priests, and so they couldn't have all of them serve. So what they did was they chose 24 as representatives of all the tribe of Levi, and they served and took their turns in the temple. Now, there are some people who say that there are 12 that are chosen out of Israel because there are 12 tribes of Israel and so we have the representation of Israel there 12 of them and then from the New Testament era we have the 12 uh, chosen according to the number of the apostles there are 12 apostles so out of both the Old and the New Testaments there are 12 representatives of each which makes a total of 24 that may be true I don't know the Bible doesn't tell us that but it does appear here that these 24 represent all that have been saved so all of us We're all going to have a representation at God's throne. And then we look at these four beasts. Uh, Four beasts, that doesn't mean wild animals that are in heaven, but it simply means four living creatures. And these are angels, probably on the same order as the cherubim and the seraphim, and they are also representative. They are representative of the entirety of the angelic host. Now, the Bible says that that number is innumerable. And so you couldn't have all of them in the throne room either. And so what you have are these that represent the angels and they guard the holiness of God. And so these elders and these living creatures fall down and they worship God. Now I want to show you in that the attitude of worship. They fell down and worshiped. Now in chapter 4 we read, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now as I look at that scene and read what the scripture says, I'm reminded of how truly ignorant that we are of God. You know, there's really not much of a sense of who God is. You know, there are many churches that do the hand-waving and the body swaying and the shouting and the jumping up and down and all of that, and there is a chaotic madness to their worship in those churches, and I don't think that they really have a sense of who God is. And then you take preaching. Uh, Preaching has gone over into prosperity thinking, and that makes God a sugar daddy for Christians. And so people come and they make their demands of God. They say we have certain rights because we're saved people. They make their demands in the kingdom. They make demands for material riches, which is the very thing that God says that we're not to concentrate on. And so you have these people that think that they're worshiping God and and they have their formulas, their surefire formulas for a way that you can get a blessing from God. And then on the other hand, 
you have people that have grown up with the hymns that come out of the revival period of Moody and Ira Sankey and some of those. And I suppose that when those hymns were originally written, that they weren't uh, to be irreverent. I mean, they did have some reverence for God. But what that has produced in our minds, that kind of hymnology has produced in our minds a totally different picture from who God really is. And so what comes out of all of that is what I would call a buddy system. That Jesus is your familiar friend. And what Jesus does, he climbs in the car with you on Saturday night and he goes clubbing with you. Jesus comes down to your level. And so you just take Jesus on a stroll around the neighborhood and you lock arms with Jesus and you have a really, really chummy time with him. And folks, what that has done is to degrade our idea of who God is. And it actually causes us to come into a place like this without shame on our heads. I mean, when we come in here and the Word of God is being preached, the Word of God is being read, uh, things are being sung, prayers are being offered. And at the same time that that's going on, there are many times, even in our own church services, where people are talking to one another. People are playing around and doing something. People get up and walk out of the church. It's just like, you know, there's nothing going on there. And we do not have a sense of who God is. And so we don't really have an idea of the might and the majesty and the glory of the God that we serve. And so that's lost. And we're not really worshiping God and realizing that when we come in a place like this, we ought to come with an attitude of taking our shoes off because we're on holy ground. We're worshiping God. Well, you don't see that in heaven. What you see in heaven is true worship. Here you see the right attitude. They bow to God's sovereignty. They realize that they're in the presence of Almighty God. Now, one thing that we most certainly do have to remember, we have to remember who is the potter and who is the clay. And we need to understand which one of us is in that position. So, don't ever think this. Don't ever think that God is helpless, that God doesn't do whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases with anyone. Now, the second thing we would note about this scene in the sovereignty here is the amen of worship. Verse number 4 says, And the four and twenty elders and four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Amen, that's a word that we say a lot. And I think that we may take it a little bit too lightly. W.A. Criswell says that it is the heavenly word of a vowel, of committal to truth. It seals, it affirms, it binds. It is the highest word of praise that human speech can utter. Have you ever thought that? When you say amen in church, have you ever thought this, that it's the highest word of praise that human speech can utter? Amen is another word that's found in the Hillels. Psalm 106, verse number 48, the scripture says, Bless be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say amen, praise ye the Lord. And we've noted that the praise ye the Lord at the end is actually hallelujah. And when you say Amen, that's an affirmation to what you've seen and heard. And so these 24 elders and the living creatures can't do anything other than to give full consent to the destruction of wicked Babylon. And so they're in perfect agreement with God and whatever he does in bringing judgment upon them. Now, that actually takes me back to an earlier thought. I think maybe we talked about it a little bit last week and even the week before, that heaven 
does not shed tears over the destruction of wicked people. There is no remorse in heaven because God's judgment comes upon wicked people. Those judgments are just. And if there's anything that upholds God's justice, that's a cause for praise and not for pouting. But you also need to understand that right now, we do need to shed some tears. And we do need to be remorseful about these things. It's natural for us to weep over loved ones that die and go to hell. And the Bible teaches that we ought to do everything that we can to reach them right now. But when you get into heaven, your mind is in perfect tune with God. I know some people would deny this, but it's true. Even hell glorifies God. Hell is not an unfortunate consequence of God's failed plans. God knew what he was doing. Well, then we have a fourth hallelujah. This was the last one that's written in the text of Scripture, but I don't think it's the last one that we'll ever hear. The fourth hallelujah, verses 5 and 6, And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And here we have this last one is the supreme hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now, if you know Handel's Messiah and the hallelujah chorus, you know that these words, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, are the swelling crescendo of uh, Handel's masterpiece. There have been several times that have remarked about this, that the hallelujah chorus is sung at Christmas time, uh, mostly at Christmas time, but it's not actually a Christmas hymn. It's not about the birth of Christ, but it's about the sovereign supreme ruler who will bring a glorious kingdom upon the earth. And so this is after Christ's birth. It's after his death. It's after his resurrection. It's after the rapture. It's the millennial kingdom when it comes. And so it's Armageddon. It's, it's when heaven and earth rejoices because the righteous king has come back to this world and he takes that old serpent, the dragon, Satan, and binds him and then begins that kingdom upon the earth. So the ha- last hallelujah comes in response to an angel that says, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And right on cue comes that refrain, Alleluia, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now, we have two observations here, and then we'll conclude this evening. And the first is the reign of the Creator. Now, what I'd like you to do is turn to the Psalms, and we're going to look at the last five Psalms. Now, I mentioned the Hallels, and this is a part of them. And the book of Psalms ends with five hallelujahs. Now, let's look then at the first verses of the last five Psalms. Psalm 146, verse number 1. Praise ye the Lord... Praise the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 147, verse 1. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is comely. Psalm 148, verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Psalm 149, verse number 1. Praise ye the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of saints. And Psalm 150, verse 1, Praise ye the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in the firmament of his power. Now, if you examine those psalms, you'll find a common theme that runs through them. And the theme is that God is the creator, God is sovereign, and God is supreme above all. 
And there's some great verses that are found here. Look at, look at 146, verses 5 and 6. It says, Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. Now, that's great. I mean, you have to be struck with this because you know that not everybody has Jacob for his help. I mean, you are blessed that you have Jacob's God for your help. I mean, the one true living God is your help. I mean, how blessed are you not to be like those zombies that are wandering around out there that know nothing at all about God and care nothing at all about God. How blessed are you not to be caught up in this mishmash of the world's thinking that says that we come from amoebas and monkeys. God is the creator, and you're blessed if you know him. And you're blessed because you know Jesus Christ, who is the revelation of the Father. He is the way that we know God. Now look at how that psalm ends, 146. The Lord shall reign forever, even thy God, O Zion, unto all generations, praise ye the Lord. Now if you look in the 147th psalm, verses 3 and 4. He healeth the broken in heart, and bindeth up their wounds. He telleth the number of the stars, he calleth them all by their names. I, I suppose that most of you have read these psalms before. What do you think would be the connection between verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 147? You take a look at the stars at night. How many stars did God create? I mean, how many billions of them are there? Trillions of stars that God has created. You know, since they put the Hubble telescope in space, we've been able to look further and further out, and there is no end to the, to the stars that God has created. So God, it says here, has named every one of those stars. So what's the connection between verses 3 and 4? Well, verse number 3 says that he binds up the broken in heart. Then it says he names the stars. Now, the psalmist tells you this so that you know that God never forgets your name. I mean, if he can name all of those stars, a name for every single star in the universe, is God going to forget you? And you can tie that right in to where the Scripture says that God knows even the numbers of hairs that are on your head. That's what God knows about you. So God never forgets you. It's blessed to know the Creator. Look at Psalm 148, verse number 1. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise ye him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his host. Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heaven of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. There is the supreme creator, the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, what do you think that God is going to do with those who ignore him? What do you think God's going to do with all the Carl Sagan's and the Stephen Hawking's that deny the existence of God? Let me read to you one of Carl Sagan's blasphemous quotes. Now, Carl Sagan is dead now, and that's not a bad thing, I don't think. But here's one of Carl Sagan's blasphemous quotes. And you'll know why I say that after I read this. He says, You see the religious people, most of them, really think this planet is an experiment. That's what their beliefs come down to. 
Some God or other is always fixing and poking and messing around with tradesmen's wives, giving tablets on mountains, commanding you to mutilate your children, telling people that word, what words they can say and what words they can't say, making people feel guilty about enjoying themselves and like that. Why can't the gods leave well enough alone? All this intervention speaks of incompetence. If God didn't want Lot's wife to look back, why didn't he make her obedient so she'd do what her husband told her to do? I guess that's a good question. <clears throat> or, if he hadn't, or if he hadn't made Lot such an expletive deleted, maybe she would have listened to him more. If God is omnipotent and omniscient, why didn't he start the universe out in the first place so it would come out the way he wants? Why is he constantly repairing and complaining? No, there's one thing the Bible makes clear. The biblical God is a sloppy manufacturer. He's not good at design. He's not good at execution. He'd be out of business if there was any competition. And there's a fundamental problem with that, isn't there? Why didn't he start the universe out the way that he wanted it to come out the way that he wants? Well, folks, this is exactly the way that God wants it to be. He started it this way. He let it fall into sin according to a divine plan. He redeems it according to a divine plan. He magnifies his own name. And in the end, God receives the greatest glory because he does have a perfect design. Psalm 149, verse number 4 says, For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute upon them the judgment written. This honor have all his saints. Praise ye the Lord. And so do Stephen Hawking and Carl Sagan, Madeline O'Hare, William Ernest Henley, Voltaire, and all the bunch of those a host of those other reprobates, God says to them, Psalm 150, verse 6, Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Now finally, we come to the roar of the creatures. This is in verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now, there we have all creatures, all creatures in heaven, the millions of saints that are there, the untold numbers of the mighty angels that are there, and all in one chorus that sounds like a rolling, deafening thunder. They say, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now, you notice something here when all of heaven sings together? There's no separation. There, there is no such thing as the least and the greatest. There, there is no hierarchy in this blended worship of God's creatures. Now, Babylon had its economic classes. In fact, the Word of God says there were some who lived deliciously with Babylon. But you don't find that in heaven. God does not make those kinds of distinctions. And so the lowliest upon the earth is as welcome as the greatest person. In fact, the Apostle Paul said that God didn't choose many that are mighty and not many noble, not many that are wise. All stand on equal footing with God. And so man or woman, black or white, 
or as the kids sing, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. All of us stand in equal footing with God when we're in heaven. Well, here we see four hallelujahs. Hallelujah chorus. The severe hallelujahs, there are two of those. The sovereign hallelujah, then the supreme hallelujah. And in these we see that God is central. All in heaven and earth are in agreement in this. Our God is greatly to be praised. Now, folks, this is the last time that we see hallelujah in the King James Version, the last time. But there are lots of these hallelujahs that are spread throughout the Word of God. The praise ye the Lord. And that's the chorus that will be sung in heaven when our righteous king is ready to set up his kingdom here upon the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight and we do thank you that your kingdom is coming and we do pray for it. You haven't told us the time. Uh, We don't know when, but we do know that you've said it will come. And Lord, we pray for it. We pray that your kingdom will be established on the earth in in different ways. We, We pray that the actual kingdom would come, physically that you would come to this earth. But we also pray, Lord, that spiritually that your kingdom would increase upon the earth. I pray, Lord, that every member of Brian Baptist Church would think about those that are lost and friends and people that we work with and family that don't know you and that we would be aware at this very moment that people are dying and going to hell. But that can change because the kingdom of God can be increased upon the earth by every member of this church helping to reach people for you. Lord, bless us tonight. We thank you for these hallelujahs that are sung in heaven. And may we say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.